Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, so today our guest is John Kroger, and we'll be talking about an array of topics, including the importance of learning and education for national security, the future of higher education, and supporting human thriving in society at large. That's right, Chris. You know, we're just so thrilled to have John Kroger with us today. So let me introduce him, but I can really only kind of hit the highlights given his depth of experience. So John Kroger currently serves as a vice president at the Aspen Institute. He previously served as the inaugural chief learning officer of the United States Navy and Marine Corps, providing oversight for all education institutions and programs for more than 900,000 civilian and military personnel with a budget of more than $1.7 billion. Before that, he served as the president of Reed College, the attorney general of Oregon, assistant U.S. attorney, and in several roles as a policy analyst and legislative assistant. He also served in uniform as a U.S. Marine, after which he earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in philosophy at Yale University and his law degree from Harvard University. So, John, Formally, I want to welcome you to the Indigo Podcast. Thank you. It's, it's great to join you this morning. Wonderful. <laughs> yes. You got, John is a giant. Like, I mean, we, we could spend the hour podcast just going over his feats and general <laughs> awesomeness that he's had over his life. But, but we actually want to get some knowledge from him. <laughs> That's right. So maybe we start with uh, you know this idea of you know the importance of learning and education for national security. So you know maybe before we get too deep into that, I'd look, like to know just you know why did you join the Marines in the first place? So I enlisted in the Marines on my 17th birthday, um, way back in uh, the early 1980s, and. For me, it was a decision that probably looks like the decision of a lot of people uh, thinking about the armed forces. I ultimately wanted to go to college. I couldn't afford it at that time. And the college education I could afford was probably part-time and kind of working full-time and scraping by. And uh, I really thought that if I spent a few years in the armed forces, I would be able to create a platform where maybe... I could get the kind of college education I really wanted. And I was also not ready to go to college. I wanted an adventure. I, I really was a little bit burned out on formal learning. I'd always been sort of a self-taught kind of person. And so the idea of cutting loose from formal education for a few years and um, uh, serving our country just really resonated with me at that age. That's fantastic. And then, you know, what's interesting is you went from that adventure to uh, another adventure where, you know, in typical Marine fashion, you uh, went straight from being a Marine to going and getting two degrees from from Yale and your law degree from Harvard. So what what inspired you to uh, to go that route with your education? So when I was in the Marine Corps, a a my battalion sergeant major came to me and said, you really need to go to college. And they were looking at my test scores and I was my battalion Marine of the quarter. And they said, if you want to go to Annapolis, we will help you go to Annapolis. And by that time, I was already certain the armed forces were not going to be my career, uh, which was an open question when I enlisted. But I knew I wanted to go to a civilian institution. And the leadership that Sergeant Major uh, demonstrated completely changed my life. So. He, he did not respond negatively to my statement at all. He said, it doesn't matter. Civilian, Annapolis, wherever, you just need to go to college and we will help you. And um, so uh, my battalion made it possible. I mean, it was a time where we were not engaged overseas um, and uh, they gave me time off. You know, we were scheduled to be in winter training uh, up in the Sierras in California and it conflicted with my taking the SAT. And my battalion told me to stay home and take the SAT. And wow. uh, I was admitted to Yale. And uh, my starting date um, at college began about a month before I was due to get out of the Marine Corps. And instead of making me wait a year, um, the Marine Corps cut me orders sending me to college. So I still have 
a copy of those orders. They, they mean a lot to me. I, uh, basically was told to go and, um, report for duty at Yale college and serve for a month as a college student and then discharge myself. And, uh, so that's what I did. That was, my <laughs> uh, in the Marine Corps. And, you know, for me that symbolized, you know, that commitment of that, of the Marine Corps at that time to being a true learning organization that really supported the intellectual development of their force, um, and put their money where their mouth was, um, was life-changing. And it's part of the reason I, I went back when they asked to be the chief learning officer of the Navy and Marine Corps, because um, I felt like uh, if I could help pay that forward, um, uh, I would try to do so. Yeah, so I just want people to know this false dichotomy, and especially now, between the enlisted being the uneducated numbskulls and the officers being the genius, it's just not real. There's different roles, different kind of people are suited to different types of jobs. You know, I know as a guardsman, you know, somebody's like, well, you know, I, I don't want to promote because I'd like to be in my unit that's close to my house. And I've deployed three times with these guys. You know, my my first sergeant, um, he was my platoon sergeant and it worked out to where he's my first sergeant, was a GS-15 PhD plant physiologist in charge of the USDA lab at Auburn University. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now that's not that's not a typical track, but that's open for a lot of people now in the military. That kind of thinking. Yeah, I have to say the no, the distinction between officers and enlisted is probably not sustainable over the next fifty years. Um, it is sustainable over probably the next fifteen to twenty, but um, we it's it's really grounded in the sort of outmoded 19th century early 20th century notion of class distinction that that is not sustainable in a in a modern democracy and the roles have really changed so the the notion that the enlisted personnel are the doers not the thinkers is completely eroded in the digital era right uh the enlisted force are the people doing the work which means they're like setting up networks and defending networks um, and figuring out how to respond when the networks are being interfered with. Obviously, that's very advanced work. And the, the notion of a, of, a, of, a, of a poorly educated enlisted force and a somehow better educated, more superior officer, officer corps is, is, is probably not long-term sustainable. We're going to need a very well-educated enlisted force, and that, that's going to erode that distinction, I think. Yeah. So you certainly have this passion for and a vision for the role of learning and education with regard to national security and our forces. And as you mentioned, and as I mentioned in my introduction of you, you were the inaugural chief learning officer for the Navy and Marine Corps. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about how that came about. What was that like? So really interesting experience. So I was teaching at Harvard at the Kennedy School of Government and Harvard Law School. And um, was asked to come and take up this brand new role. The theory um, really was was developed by Secretary of the Navy Spencer. Um, Richard had decided that in the 21st century, our 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 chief advantage over technologically equal peers was going to be an intellectual advantage, and because of that, we needed to have a much better prepared force intellectually. Um, they convened a major study, which, which really concluded that we were not, uh, at the, at the level we needed to be, um, to be at our, our strategic and operational peak. And, uh, so the chief learning officer job was created, um, in order to, to bring about a new vision of Navy and Marine Corps education. Um, uh, I think on the positive side, um, we managed to get a lot done very quickly, including the creation of the new Naval Community College, which is going to go live in its first pilot program with about 500 students in January. Uh, the challenge, as always, this was a vision of one particular political appointee and um, a group of admirals and generals who shared his beliefs. Um, we've had new leadership. Uh, in the Department of Navy, Richard Spencer left as a result of the ethics scandal involving uh, the Navy SEALs. And um, the new leadership does not prioritize education in the same way that uh, Secretary Spencer did. And um, so, you know, what the future holds, um, I think, for Navy and Marine Corps education is a little bit of an open question. 
Yeah. So you mentioned the Naval Community College. That was an initiative that you were certainly deeply involved with and leading, and that that's something that is going forward. What is the vision for that? And maybe for some of our listeners who aren't, uh, you know, in the military or have military experience, what is the value that that brings to our military? Sure. So uh, the vision was very simple. Um, you know, I think we uh, often view education and service in the armed forces as a, a choice. You do one or the other. And I think it's very important long-term for recruiting and retention that education and, and military service go hand in hand. Um, so there's a recruiting dimension to this. I really thought it was important to be able to say to families, look, your, your child, if, if he or she enlists, will spend four or five, six years in the enlisted force they can come out of that with the first half of their college degree done. If they decide to stay in, that degree will be very valuable. But if they decide to depart, they will leave with a transferable, excellent two-year college education, as well as all the experience they've accrued. So a piece of it is, is, a, is about really recruiting the 21st century, highly skilled force that we need. Probably the more important part, we identified a whole host of areas where there was a giant delta, if you will, between where we are today with our capabilities and where we need to be. And a lot of those are in areas like information technology, computing, data science, um, you know, fire control, uh, a whole host of areas where a technical community college education would be a major force multiplier for us. So a big part of our goal was to identify working with the fleet, with the Marine Corps and, and with with admirals and and senior enlisted personnel, what are the academic intellectual capabilities your force is going to need? And how can we develop uh, degree programs that will match those? So um, it's now a three-force uh, effort. It's the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Coast Guard. And I um, you know, really expect it to, to develop into the primary way uh, that we educate the enlisted force going forward in some of the academic specialties that we're going to need in, in much higher density in, a, in, a, in an era of, of, of networks, of drones, uh, of artificial intelligence. Sure. I think it's a, it's a fantastic initiative. And one thing that I was thinking about as you were describing it is how, you know, it's a, it's a good recruiting effort, right? Or a recruiting uh, tool to tell people that they have this opportunity once they're, once they're in. Uh, but it also serves certainly as a way to educate people so that if they do leave, they can do even more in society. And I just, you know, think when I reflect back on my military service and, and other people's, I, I just see the military as being a phenomenal way to, to enrich our society at large, you know, for the people who eventually get out, we all eventually get out. And I think that's just a, a really big part of, of thriving in our society at large. You know, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think just speaking personally, two huge impacts on my life. One is that you're constantly trained in the armed forces to put the well-being of the country and your community above your own selfish interests. And uh, in an age in which, um, you know, we probably celebrated individual well-being over the well-being of our community, I think that v those values are really important. And people pick those up in the armed forces and, that, and those values never leave. Um, they will always have a sense of commitment to the broader well-being of the country um, that will run through everything they do. I also think people underestimate how profoundly powerful the education and training can be. I mean, I think I learned to be a strategic thinker and problem solver, you know, during my three-year enlistment as a 17 and 18-year-old Marine. Um, I was in a special operations unit, Marine Recon, and, and we were given a lot of initiative, as I think most, most enlisted folks are, to identify problems and solve them. And for me, that laid the foundation for the entire rest of my career. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, one thing that we talked about when we had a chat, when we were getting ready for this episode and bouncing around some ideas, is you you mentioned how you know you had that plus then your academic experience that gave you this diversity of experiences that you know we know this from uh, you know the study of uh, of organizations and how people succeed as leaders that having that breadth is important and it seems like you know the military can certainly play a role in that getting that diversity. Yeah, I I agree. I I think it also helps you understand radically different communities with different values. I mean, it, I think one of the key things we need from leaders today 
um, is an ability to see that lots of different people come at problems with very different perspectives based on their life history and their background. And um, rather than dismissing those, trying to understand, embrace, and incorporate very diverse values and perspectives into uh, your organization's mission and operations is really important. And I've always thought my time in the Marines really helped that, in part because of the just this stiff transition from from the Marines to Yale. I had about, uh, I don't know, eight days maybe um, between leaving the Marine Corps and starting college. Um, Yale in the, in the 1980s was not a particularly egalitarian institution. Um, and that radical shift in perspective, um, I think, helped open my eyes to the fact that there's just a, an immense human diversity out there very different values and perspectives and being able to work with people from uh, all those different kinds of diverse perspectives and incorporate them into your work stream is I I think fundamental to what we need to do um, in leadership and all of, all of our organizations, higher ed, certainly um, uh, national security as well. That's so great. I, you know, I also, I'm just wondering, are there examples of these types of initiatives in the other branches of our armed forces or in maybe other countries? Are they doing similar things or is this uh, fairly unique to, you know, the sea services that you mentioned? You know, the Air Force has something similar. So they started a community college way back in the 1970s. And uh, I think it's generally been viewed to be um, a great success. I would say that our concept differed pretty substantially in terms of how we would execute that. Um, they have a separate degree program for every single MOS in the Air Force. So, uh, you know, hundreds of, of different degree programs. And I felt from a quality control purpose, just as a higher education person, I know when you've got that many degree programs, you're not able to make sure that they're all world class. Um, a lot of their programs are, are technical and don't lead to a true associate's degree that would be transferable out in the civilian world. And again, um, not to denigrate that, that, that military technical training, but I really wanted to provide um, an education that would be recognized and transferable if people leave the services. And so the Naval Community College is working um, uh, with really world-class providers of associate's degrees um, in the civilian education world. Um, we decided to partner with major universities all over the country um, and that, again, I think that reflects the third big philosophical difference. Rather than trying to do this ourselves, create our own brick-and-mortar community college, I, I thought we are not going to be able to keep up to date the kind of programs we want. We'll be better off just just purchasing access to um, the world-class higher education that already exists in the United States. So it's very much not a brick-and-mortar strategy. It's an online education working with civilian providers. Um, but there's a core of programs, uh, uh, classes that we're going to provide ourselves. And um, that's in, in part to do a, a shared cohort experience. Um, we wanted to have um, uh, some courses that everyone would take together. Um, it's also to make sure that students are ready for world-class civilian education. So it, it, it provides a screening and, and remedial uh, capability. Um, and finally, you know, some of those core classes, um, you know, one that's under development is is a is a course on ethics and making good life choices in the service. Um, very specific needs that we thought we could develop um, very successfully ourselves. So it's it's similar in some ways to something that has existed in the Air Force, but sort of in terms of 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 mission and execution, quite different. I, you know, experienced the value of military service firsthand. I mean, it, it's in a lot of ways been the foundation of the rest of my career. Um, part of that is. It's an education in civic virtue. You know, you are, you are trained day in and day out to put the, the well-being of the country and your community above your own selfish personal interest, including being willing to give your life for your country. And that changes your orientation, I think, for the rest of your life. Um, and in a world where we need more civically-minded citizens in the United States, I, I don't think the value of that can be, can be disregarded. I also learned a lot um, about problem-solving and strategic thinking as an enlisted Marine. Um, I would say, you know, one thing that motivated the design for the Naval Community College, we have a lot of service people who are using military benefits and getting college credits while they're in the service, but very often they are very low-quality educational programs that will not transfer once they leave. And that's always worried me. You know, I've heard a lot of stories of 
hey, I have a two-year or a four-year degree. I'm leaving the service. I went to my college and they said virtually none of the credits will transfer. And so we designed this to have articulation agreements with universities up front. Um, not only are the degrees coming from uh, world-class universities, but the articulation agreements that we're working on uh, you know, will really help ensure that no one gets out of the service with a worthless degree. They'll get out of, out of, out of the service if they choose um, with one that's really valued. You know, the refreshing thing that I've seen, and the, our military services aren't perfect. They are learning, growing, changing organizations. And one of the places that I see that they change, you know, I, I see a lot of confusion about what military service is about, or somebody will say something really obtuse about, and I'm like, wait a minute, do you actually know a veteran? No. <laughs> now, when you look back to like my dad's era and the, my grandparents, everybody knew somebody that had gone to war or something. And there had been this, you know, they call it the civilian military divide. But when we start sewing these pieces together, these educational pieces, um, one example is I helped set up the cyber teams in the Tennessee National Guard and here out in the Utah National Guard contributed there. And they're not doing their own training. They're getting the same SAN certifications, the same cyber certifications alongside their civilian peers. And and this is confidence inspiring. So it's like, well, you know, I just kind of went to this military class. No, they have world-recognized certifications and education programs and a pollination of ideas between the two, uh, you know, sets of people. So, yeah, I, I would say that there is a civil-military divide, and it has lots of ramifications, certainly politically, but also, frankly, there's a, there's a civil-military intellectual divide, I think. Right. Um, and trying to bridge that becomes really important. Um, so, you know, when we were coming up with the, with the Naval Community College, I did not want military IT certifications as the goal. I wanted certifications from Amazon and from Microsoft and from IBM and from Google to be the basis of the degree programs because, you know, that's the technology our force is going to be using. And um, so I, I think trying to find ways to um, deepen that connection between civilian life and military service. Um, if you look demographically, a very large percentage of our force um, comes from smaller rural communities and comes from the Southeast United States. And um, it's fantastic that those communities continue to produce a lot of patriotic young Americans who want to serve. You know, we need a lot of kids from the West Coast and from New York and from Chicago. And I mean, I, I you know, and so we're going to have to find ways, I think, to change our recruiting patterns um, in order to broaden who we're drawing from and then produce, frankly, a civilian world that's better understanding of what the armed forces is really all about. Right. And I, I think some of that, you know, the ways in which we organize out in the civilian around Scrum, Agile, some of these technology, you know, the less importance of hierarchy for finding knowledge for decision making. I'm seeing that start to take hold in the forces as he's saying, now, do they happen overnight? No. So I'll just make my recruiting pitch. If you mm -hmm. want to get involved in some a really cool change that's going on in our military services, go see a recruiter. I know I did. And it's a target rich environment for change. You know, if you want to drive some of this change in, in your service, because you think about every world war that we face, times when humanity faced major, major crises. It wasn't, oh, well, you're not in the military, so you, you can't contribute. You know, we got our scientists. We got our greatest minds. We had the code talkers programs. You know, we worked with our allies. All of this stuff is all ships on deck. And if you want to be involved in making this country great, right, one of the ways you can do is put your intellectual heft not just around chasing your career on the civilian side, but in a, exploring a future in public service either, you know, in parallel or in step sequence? So, you know, during President Obama's uh, term, he talked about a pivot to Asia in our defense policy. And um, in a lot of ways, the, the Trump administration has, 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 I think, tried to follow through in that. Um, that geographic pivot is important, but it's probably less important than a digital pivot. Um, you know, a recognition that... Um, 
you know, in the future, uh, the Navy is going, for example, is going to be highly dependent on completely uncrewed or minimally crewed ships and submarines. Um, the air wings on our carriers are going to be 50 or 70% drones. All of this is going to be networked. It's going to be networked, um, uh, you know, a combination of networks and, and autonomous AI running these systems. The intellectual capabilities needed to do that are immense. And we're going to have to have a massive change in, in thinking. I mean, 20 years from now, uh, IT is going to be uh, more important than naval aviation, for example. I mean, it just it just is. And that will require a massive cultural shift um, in, in the armed forces. I'm excited. There's tons of young officers, particularly, who are having these conversations and trying to drive this change. But I would say the Pentagon is about a generation behind, honestly, the private sector. I mean, you can see it at the senior level, you know, in, in, um, in meetings at the Pentagon. Uh, there's no laptops out. You know, it's the strangest thing coming from the civilian world after after many years going back into an armed forces environment. Um, a civilian meeting will have a lot of whiteboards and people thinking out loud and people brainstorming and people calling up data on their computers. None of that was taking place at senior levels of the Pentagon when I was there. And so I think there's some pretty radical cultural change from a management point of view and intellectually if we're going to be uh, the kind of force that we need to be going forward. Yeah, it can't be a thing where, oh, well, I'm a numbskull, so I joined the military. We need the same top-flight IT capabilities that keep our trading desks and our markets open and that keep our security for our banks and, and hospitals and that kind of stuff. Well, I'll give you one really interesting indicator. The, the Commandant of the Marine Corps issues a reading list uh, every every couple of years and updates it. And the reading list for 2020 just came out. And for the first time ever, there is not a separate reading list for officers and for the enlisted force. Awesome. It is one unified list, which is a recognition, frankly, that what our officers need to know is identical to what our enlisted force needs to know. And frankly, a lot of our enlisted folks are just as smart as our officers. There's not a giant intellectual gap there. So I think that was a really interesting bellwether indicator to me that, that there is a recognition that um, there's change on the way. So I'd like to pivot our conversation a little bit now toward the future of higher education in general. And just for our listeners' knowledge, uh, John had a blog series on leadership in higher education that was posted at InsideHigherEd.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes where you talk about a variety of ideas, which I thought were really interesting. And you know, you were you've obviously been through a lot of school yourself, but you were also the president of a liberal arts college. And uh, I guess I would just love to hear from your perspective, having your experience, uh, what do you think is the purpose of higher education anyway? So I think the most important thing is we stop talking about higher education as a monolithic experience. So nice. let me immediately say, I don't think there's a purpose, a single purpose to higher education. I think um, there are lots of different needs that are met by our higher education system. It's a it's a already a highly segmented market, um, but it's going to segment even more. And I think a lot of our challenges in the past have been kind of a one size fits all model, um, a, a notion that uh, a four year in residence bachelor's degree is the is the sort of keystone for what we're trying to do, and everything else is kind of a second quality or second tier quasi solution for people who are not as smart or not as rich. Um, the and I cardigan wearing colleges versus the non cardigan wearing colleges. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think we have to recognize that there are lots of different purposes um, for our higher education system. Um, right. Uh, you know, one very important thing, important need is met by traditional college. Right. Um, when an 18 year old goes to a traditional residential college or university experience, it's it's about degrees and credentialing. But it's also about, you know, ethical and intellectual development um, and becoming a, a different kind of human being with different kind of life capacities. And that's a great and important goal. And I, and I don't in all of our push to view college as as job preparation. I think we're missing out that there is a deep desire for people to have 
a foundational life experience that's that's holistic and about human development and and and, and developing a, a, a deeper, richer capacity as a human being. Um, we've also got people who desperately do need um, technical education that can, can be best met um, through an online program or through a certification that doesn't lead to a degree. So I, I think I think we really need to start recognizing that we have you know five or six different types of purposes that our that our system meets. And we need world-class institutions at every level, right? Um, I'm a huge fan, obviously, as someone who helped create a community college for the armed forces. I'm a huge fan of the community college model. We need to stop thinking of community colleges as third-rate, underfunded um, options for kids who, for some reason, aren't ready for college. We need to view them as giant engines for our community and our our economy. Yes, they can be great stepping stones to a four-year degree program, um, but they also should be the locus of a lot of our career development um, opportunities, um, both for 18 and 19-year-olds and for people who are adults who want to go back and gain some additional capabilities. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not pessimistic at all about the American higher education system. It has immense capability, immense capacity. Um, but I think we need to figure out um, what our needs are and align those institutions and resources to make those those institutions more viable. So, you know, you mentioned that higher education is not this monolithic thing and shouldn't be viewed that way. And I completely agree that there are many different purposes for higher education and different aspects of it. Uh, but on the kind of the positive note, what are some of the things that you think are going well in American higher education? So it's interesting. I there's so much gloom and doom. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Mm-hmm. People have this just incredible gloom and doom. I wrote yeah. a uh, I, I wrote a blog post uh, on my blog on Inside Higher Education that just listed recent titles of higher education books. And <laughs> they're all about the tragedy of this or the failure of that or the collapse of this. And I and I do think you know um, uh, we need to be aware of a few things. One is um, Globally, we remain the gold standard for higher education. Um, so, you know, in terms of world-class research institutions, um, the Times Higher Education Ranking, I think 14 of the top 20 institutions around the globe were American. Um, our university research capability is unlike that of any other country in the world. Um, China is gaining perhaps a bit, but the reality is we, we have really unsurpassed research capability. Um, we have a, a system with a capacity for over 20 million students a year. That's a very rich and deep and dense capacity, which means um, in terms of the percentage of students who are getting advanced uh, degrees or certificates, um, we rank very highly in the globe, um, along with you know South Korea and a few other countries that have, have, have very um, education-intensive social uh, policies. Uh, so, you know, I... I I come to this with, you know, looking around and seeing a lot that is going well. I think the things that we are challenged on, um, one is certainly cost and affordability. And I do think there's some important cost containment that needs to happen um, in higher education. Um, But it it doesn't detract from the fact that that ultimately we need to view higher education as a public good that's, that's to a very large degree publicly supported. Um, Pell Grants used to go a very long way toward, toward providing uh, a, a good public education at, at, at an affordable cost. And now their, their value has been so decreased by inflation and the rise in cost in higher ed that, that um, you know, they, they really don't give you that much help at all. Um, so we need um, um, a much more, I think, serious investment uh, in higher education, um, really supporting students. Um, publicly more in order to develop intellect that then they will use to support our entire country. So yeah, we have challenges, but I don't see it as a broken or failed system. Um, I see it as a system that needs some reforms and ones hopefully um, will begin to challenge uh, tack in the next couple of years. Yeah. You know, I think of it as a search engine itself. You want to find out something, you go to Google and pull it up. You know, and when you talk about that kind of a portfolio approach to options. Somebody said, well, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I'm kind of interested in this. 
oh, look, I can just go to this piece of our educational portfolio and strategy as a nation, plug in, get what I need. And what's interesting is when students are interested in what they're learning and it has an application to their life, the engagement is really high. And I think about MIT, wow, way back, you know, we have to get more people interested in AI and all that stuff. So they put a lot of their courses for free online. It's not like there's a secret book on calculus that MIT has and stuff. And so it's interesting to watch how our culture shift to, we want access to knowledge. And almost, you could almost make a philosophical argument that knowledge itself wants to be free. Most of the business challenges have been, how do we keep our music from getting pirated? How do we keep our like good ideas from getting pirated? Well, this as people learn this stuff, the knowledge just wants to get out of there. And, and it's nice to see that, you know, we're starting to move, you know, the crisis of affordability is causing business models to evolve based on, you know, student demands. And another piece that comes to mind is, um, you know, I want a top flight education and really learn something, but my teachers are all researchers and are horribly pedagogically horrible. So, yeah. I, you know, so, so let me ask uh, the two of you, how often a day do you go to Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or some other social media site? Dozens. I, I'm too embarrassed <laughs> to say the real number. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Here's what I, I both want to see and, and hope and expect to see in 10 years. I expect to see a ubiquitous learning management system that people go to as often as they go to Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, I expect it to be a combination of educational platform and 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 social networking um, uh, system. I could go on. It, I would have suggestions for what I might want to learn next, right? Mm-hmm. And it'd be AI and and algorithm driven, just like our social media is now. I would have a, a port, uh, a, a, just in the same way that Amazon suggests books for me. The LMS would suggest courses for me. Um, they suggest ones of different length, right? Am I interested? I'm a gardener. Am I interested in a in a two hour course or a one month course? Um, am I interested in just a in a free public access uh, course, or am I willing to pay for something? Try to get certification. Try to get a degree. Have thousands of educational providers populating that with learning options. Having employers being able to search that database to find people who have the capabilities that they want to hire. Um, and so a, a social media platform that's a learning management system that brings together educational institutions looking for students, employers looking for certain capabilities, and humans looking for development options. Um, I fully expect that to happen. You know, I, I think the the notion that um, Everything should be run through one school or university is is outdated. I've I've always described the university as a medieval learning management system. Uh, <laughs> right, you sign up, you pay a fixed cost, and they provide a certain learning options and a certification at the end. There's no way to, that we shouldn't reason we shouldn't disaggregate that now. And and so, um, you know, I'm hoping there could be a real learning revolution um, that people will pursue learning options online um, uh, in the same way that they do other endeavors online like shop. Yeah. So all the major enterprise HR software is already set up for that searching for skills internally. So I can totally see this. But and one of the things that we struggle with YouTube, any numbskull with a camera and some production capability can put out a host of information. However, there's a lot of baloney Let's just take politics information and all that stuff. Do you see a challenge as we move to this more democratized plug and play model with people trusting, you know, is this the real American history that I'm learning here? Or is this the real, you know, you know, science of, you know, maybe a topic that's still controversial, at least in some places like evolution, climate change, these kinds of topics? So I would say ideally this would be a curated system. Right. Like you would you would you would have, uh, you know, the people who are owning and running the system um, uh, to be open to learning opportunities from a host of providers to but, but to provide some basic screening to make sure that they're not exploitative or or misleading. 
But you can imagine, right, a conservative learning uh, management system popping up, um, populated mostly by courses that have a particular ideological bent, right? I mean, I think there is a a danger that comes with pure intellectual freedom of the kind you're talking about um, that can't be cabined away. And, you know, again, there's, there's, there's obviously already some indication that the American people have trouble telling truth from falsehood. And um, we, our education system needs to provide the basis to make those discriminative judgments. And um, that's going to be key, you know, in K through 12 education. Um, if we fail in that, it's going to be very hard to have a viable democracy. Yeah, because the, the challenge is, and I don't, I cannot see a way to inoculate it. If ever you had a master, a government master planning, higher ed board, you know, there's going to be those, you know, iconoclasts that are like, what a bunch of garbage. Look at the experts are telling us what to do. You know, that kind of anti-intellectual bend that's that's such a scourge. But then you also have, I mean, I don't know, I, Krugman will talk about the freshwater versus the saltwater e- economists. And there are some different perspectives. You know, I think that's just going to plague. I think we need to go there, but we need to be eyes wide open that it's not going to be perfect. We're going to bring our society with us to whatever learning uh, environment we've set up. But that, that's, and it's exactly no different from the dangers we have with media today, right? I mean, it's exactly the same problem, right? Ultimately, we're reliant on the people who control the the means of communication to to do some meaningful screening. Um, we're already right heavily divided between a CNN and a Fox world, and you know a learning management systems could help bridge that gap, or we could wind up with um, educational systems that are really bifurcated ideologically. Um, you know, I don't see that problem as going away. Um, it certainly, I think. Um, the Trump administration has in some way intensified it. Um, the recent announcement that we're going to have a commission on patriotic education, um, the president's tweet that um, schools that are teaching the wrong version of history will lose their tax-exempt status, um, right, is a, is a dangerous step toward the government certifying certain types of knowledge as being acceptable and certain types of knowledge as not. And um, so, yes, huge dangers, but they're not going to go away. So yeah. I have to be vigilant as a society and try to teach people to make rational decisions um, and judgments. So with all these changes, and I think this is really fascinating, uh, what would you say, what kind of advice would you give to a higher education leader? You know, if you were maybe if, even if you were talking to your former self, you know, when you were uh, president of Reed College, or you know, if you're running a public university, what advice would you give them? Um, my single most important piece of advice I always give people is to be clear about your value proposition. You know, I think the biggest problem in higher education is that some of the institutions are run the way they are because they've always been run that particular way, and. I think people need to step back and ask themselves, what are we offering that is unique? And is that unique thing we're offering valued by enough people to make this a sustainable endeavor? And, you know, for a lot of our institutions, there's no doubt that they have a high powered value proposition. Um, You know, I, I, I don't particularly for the top 100 or 150 colleges and universities in the country. Um, They have strong brands they're offering something that people desperately want to get. Um, I don't see that changing. Um, but I would say, you know, we have 4,000 plus higher ed institutions for the other 3,800 plus. You really need to be clear about what your value proposition is and double down on that. I mean, it, it's interesting. My own experience at Reed College, um, you know, it's a very distinguished college um, but was very unclear about what its value proposition was and thus had no real clear communication to the world about what the college was about. Um, had a lot of competing strains that were, were, um, that were in tension with one another. And it was compli- a complicated conversation. There are winners and losers when you clarify your value proposition. But, you know, we managed to double the number of applicants 
in five years because we were being more clear about why this is a valuable experience, why you should invest in this. Um, and colleges really need to hone in on that. You know, I, I, for me, that is the central question of leadership today is can you define that value proposition and then bring your key constituencies, your board, your students, your faculty, your staff, um, along with that vision of, of what the value to society is that you're providing. Right. And I can only imagine, you know, trying to uh, make some of these changes with with faculty members. Being a faculty member myself, I know that it, it can be challenging. So uh, but I think your point about a clear value proposition is so important for today's higher education leader. You know, we've talked about some of these different disruptive trends and things that are happening in higher education. Uh, and then, of course, the one we haven't discussed is COVID. Right. This has been a huge disruption for the way we teach uh, through all levels. And I'm curious to know how you see COVID affecting higher education going forward. Are there obviously there are some negatives, but are there any positives that might come out of this? What do you think? So one thing I would say is for everyone who thinks higher education is not nimble, they should look at the past six months. Right. We took a system of 20 million students and managed to put virtually all of them online seamless, more or less seamlessly in a matter of months. I mean, I, 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 you know, I have to say that would not have been possible five years ago, given the state of technology, but it was possible at this moment in history. And higher ed did it, you know, for everyone's complaining about faculty members who refused to change. I think faculty members across the country have been awesome in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, they're not resistant to change when it's absolutely necessary to sustain the educational mission of their institution. So, um, you know, I, I, I have to say that, that, that we should view this as a very proud moment in higher education. Um, I would say the biggest thing is um, that you can't put this genie back in the bottle. Um, I think a lot of students are going to come away from this experience and double and triple down on traditional and residence education. Like they're going to recognize, and I believe this. I don't think I don't think online education, for a lot of purposes, is anywhere near as good as in-person education. Amen to that. Particularly, you lose the ability to learn from your peers outside of class. John, you're so right. I at, in the dorms in my residence college experience, we were solving the world's problems every night, and our minds were on fire with the stuff that we were learning. It was lunchtime, sport. I, it it's sublime, and I I I hope that it does. Because so, resident becomes more important, but the affordability is a problem. So so I would say, you know, I, I think this will clarify that a lot of people want a traditional in residence education. I, I just don't have any doubt about that. I think this will also show that there are a lot of people who need an education, and we're not going to be able to get it unless they get it online. And our capability of delivering that education has increased dramatically. Um, and I don't think that's going to go away. I think now that all major universities have gone to some degree of online education, I don't think they're going to move back on that. I don't think the genie gets put back in the bottle. So I would expect that we will come out of this um, in some ways stronger. As I said, I think the higher education market is highly segmented. And our ability to meet the very different segments will be stronger because we'll have a very vibrant online capability with much higher quality classes, I think, than we would have had um, from much more high quality educational institutions absent, absent this experience. So I'd like to kind of move now towards the final little segment that we want to talk with you about. And that is just this general idea of supporting human thriving in society at large. And I, I suppose maybe one place we could start with that is I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing at the Aspen Institute and some of your uh, goals and, and what, what you're working on. Sure. I would say, um, the best way to, to sort of ground what I'm what I'm working on is talk a little bit about what the Aspen Institute is. You know, it's 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 commonly viewed as a think tank, but it's a pretty unusual one. It was founded right after World War II, in part um, with massive input from people who were emigres from the fascist experience in Europe. And the goal of the Aspen Institute was to promote the the quote unquote good society. Um, and to try to prevent us from moving in the direction that Europe did in the 1930s, um, to maintain a 
free, just, and equitable society. And it's a vision that I think is, is you know, really profound. It's part of why I'm so attracted to the place. Um, I work on uh, the, the Rodell Public Leadership Program. It's a tool to give uh, elected leaders, and, and we'll be expanding it into the national security field and judges in the coming years, but to give elected officials a deeper set of tools for working with one another. Um, for me, the most important piece of that is um, a, a set of intensive seminars that are really designed around ethical reflection. Um, for me, uh, as you noted at the beginning, you know my my foundational academic duties are are in philosophy. Uh, my own philosophical views have shaped my career and my values. And um, for me, that's profoundly important if we're going to have elected officials who who make principled judgments rather than ones that are in their own professional self-interest. Um, they need to be exposed and reflect upon the, the ethical traditions that really ground our society. And so a lot of what, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeking to do at Aspen is to work with elected officials to deepen that degree of intellectual reflection, um, to be more aware of where their values are rooted, um, perhaps subject those values to a little more self-criticism and use um, you know classic texts from from both East and West um, to help further that reflection. That's fantastic. And if I'm not mistaken, you're an an alumnus of that same program, correct? Yes. So, um, and if you told me 15 years ago that I would wind up running, with, <laughs> um, I would have been stunned. But it's in some ways kind of a um, a blessing for me. You know, I've spent the last uh, many number of years running complex organizations. Um, with very large budgets and and hundreds, some usually thousands of employees um, and colleagues. And it's fantastic to be able at this point in my life to step back a little bit and to, to um, focus a little more on um, understanding my own intellectual trajectory and how for the next phase of my career, I can have the most positive impact. Um, I think um, management careers don't give much time or space for stepping off the conveyor belt. You know, I think we're all deeply worried when we're in management positions that if we step aside from senior management, we won't have the ability to go back. Mm. As a result, you know, preventing a gap in your resume, going immediately from one experience to the next experience um, is viewed by everyone as, a, as, a, as an imperative. And I understand all the social and economic forces that that lead to that, and I and I don't want to trivialize those, um, but it does make it very difficult for leaders to grow because they don't have enough time to reflect on their experiences. So part of what I'm doing at Aspen is trying to provide some of our top elected leaders in the country with an opportunity to do some of that growth, um, if not stepping away from their job, stepping stepping away for a series of three day weekends. Um, and really unplugging from their professional lives and really thinking about the the ultimate goals that drive their work. But I wish we could find a way to do that for senior leaders throughout all of our institutions um, in a more systemic way, because I do think, uh, you know, it, it often ter- takes years of reflection to really understand your prior experiences. And if you're immediately immersed in another intensive one, you may not get the full benefit of your experience because you won't have had time to process what you learn um, through your earlier career. That's right. You know, that's something that we do know, for example, from the research on service learning. So when we take students and have them go do something with an organization or something in the community, that part of their learning process isn't just doing it, but it's also about having guided reflection about it so you can learn the right things because you want to have the experiences and you want to learn from them but you should be trying to learn the right things. And that's not always an automatic process. And I, I love this idea of having the ability to, to take a step back and, and, and reflect upon things. This is why I really don't like course evaluations. And I, <laughs> Me neither. I've been for most of my career blessed with very good course evaluations, not always, um, uh, but generally great ones. But the problem is the value of a course isn't immediately clear on the last day of class. You know, um, uh, I took a seminar on uh, the Frankfurt School of Critical Sociology 30-something years ago. I think about that class almost every day, but certainly at least once a week. 
Okay. I'm sure my course evaluation does not say this is an experience I will reflect on for the next 30 years. I've learned something in this course that I will carry with me data. I'm sure it doesn't say that, right? Uh, and so I've always, I always, I'm always puzzled a little bit um, because I don't think you can really come to grips with what the value of certain intellectual experiences have been until they've long passed. And then, and then you really understand how they've marked you or how they haven't. Yeah, and sometimes it's you jack wagons need to learn this stuff, like it or not. I know what's healthy for you. You're a 19-year-old numbskull and don't know yet. But you'll, like John says, 30 years from now, you'll be thinking about this every day. <laughs> uh, that would not be my pitch if I were you. Uh, uh, but I would say, um, you know, it's fascinating. Um, the courses that I would have identified as most useful are not necessarily the ones that have stuck with me for 30 years. Um, you know, uh, part of the reason this course in the Frankfurt School stuck with me for so long is because I found a lot of the central texts almost nonsensical. Hmm. And it wasn't because of their complexity. I mean, I, I wrote my master's thesis on Heidegger. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with, with philosophical complexity. But I found methodologically the sort of central claims unconvincing and struggled with them. And uh, I'm sure I felt like a somewhat dismissive. And then there's been a 30-year um, ongoing process of thinking about those methodological questions and coming to realize the importance and value of what those texts were trying to teach me. So it's often, it can be an intellectually barren or frustrating experience that you wind up reflecting on that turns out to be the most important. Yeah, I can absolutely think of courses that I took, you know, for example, I remember one that very clear in my mind that I took at the beginning of graduate school. And it was just one where it's like, what is going on here? And there were some papers in particularly read that's like, this is just a bunch of garbage. And then it was like a few years later when I was writing something else, thinking about some other things, I was like, wow, now that makes sense. And um, so to your point, I think, you know, finding different ways to to evaluate teaching even, that's a that's a higher education struggle that we need to need to play with, I think, and, and improve upon. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about your thoughts on just public service in general, because you've done so much of it, right? And you've done it in a variety of different contexts. Uh, as a statewide elected official, you've uh, certainly served at very high levels in our Navy um, and elsewhere. So what advice would you have to people, really, I guess, of any stage in their careers, but what advice would you give to people who are more interested in doing public service? So... I'm not sure what advice I would give. I mean, for me, it's always felt like it was not an option not to do public service. I mean, I, I always felt, I mean, obviously I felt that relatively at a young age because I enlisted when I was 17, but I don't think I had a well-developed sense of sort of civic engagement that was driving that. Um, I do think for most of my career since then I have, um, uh, for me, it's grounded philosophically in, in, in the notion that we all have an ethical obligation to try to make the world around us a better place and to make sure our actions are, are not just in our own self-interest, but have some value for the community as a whole. And I'm not cynical at all about government. I feel like, I feel like since Watergate, we've all been very cynical about government. And that has costs, right? Uh, if we all think government is a travesty, uh, and good people should steer clear of it, then we're going to get the kind of government we've asked for. So, you know, I, I guess I don't have advice so much as a plea, which is that if you care about the community beyond yourself, and a democracy government is the way we go about trying to pursue those ends of our community, and you can't steer clear of it. You have to be politically engaged. And I would like to think everyone should do a stint in government at some point. I would like to see corporations really enable that um, by giving people leaves of absence with the ability to take, uh, come back to their job uh, when the leave is over. You know, I, I, I look at the lack of technical capability in the armed forces, for example, or in other parts of government and recognize if we could 
find ways to tap in to the technical capabilities in the private sector and really harness them, we'd be in a much better position. But we just don't have the tools to do that. Government doesn't, we don't have the government structures in place and the corporations themselves don't have any system to really enable that. And so, you know, I, I, I think changing how we view public service um, is really important. Um, you know, looking back, uh, President Reagan's statement that um, government isn't the solution, it's the problem. Um, probably had some narrow applicability to a set of regulatory and tax problems of the late 70s and early 80s. But as a general proposition, which is what it's always been taken to be, I, 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 I think it sold our government short. Um, and, you know, experiences like COVID really show us that if government works poorly, we all suffer. Like government is just extraordinarily important and we've just taken it for granted. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we can find ways to recreate an ethic of service in our, in our country that um, will let us draw upon a bigger range or a broader range of our talents. So when you think about, you know, the next few years, perhaps for our country, um, what might be some things that you're excited about and what might be some things that you're concerned about? Honestly, everything depends on what happens uh, a week from now in the election. Um, Because what the next four years for our country about will be radically different depending on, on what the outcome of that election is. I don't think it's the case that there's a shared set of problems that um, will have to be addressed regardless of, of, um, of what happens. I mean, I, I think the central question, there's a giant hole where our sense of common purpose used to be. That's our central issue, I think, as a democracy. And whether we can re- begin to rebuild that or not will, will depend very much on the outcome of Tuesday. So I don't know if we want to delve into the reality of politics in America at this moment, but for me, um, you know, quite quite profoundly, if we have four more years of a Trump administration, I think the country is going to be torn apart. Um, and how we respond to that and keep it together if he's reelected um, will be an enormous challenge. If if Vice President Biden is elected, in contrast, I think we will have challenges bringing the country back together, but they will be substantially eased by a very different style and tenor of political leadership. Yeah, I, you know, and here's the thing, guys, if we learn something from the Tea Party, it's all those guys got involved from the state on down the line in government. And and if ever there's a call for public service, if you're concerned about what you see in your community, well, put your hat in the ring and get out there. You know, if not you, who else will do it? You know, this is a time where everybody that feels, um, just any kind of sense of identity as an American, as a patriot or anything, needs to put on their best thinking cap and just get in the game here, guys. You know, these conversations that have led to this point, they they didn't get derailed overnight. They're not going to be solved overnight. But our nation was founded by people that said, hey, we're going to get together and not put up with this taxation and representation stuff. And at different times in our history, there have been crises which regular numbskulls like you and me said, all right, you know, a lot of the greatest generations, one of the themes in all the interviews that they do on 60 Minutes and all that stuff is like, well, you know, I don't know. There was just all this crazy stuff going on in the world. And I just took a solid at bat and gave it my darndest. And so, you know, John, I just want to say thank you for one, being a good example of putting your hat in the ring not being a numbskull, developing your mind and your skills so that your level of game that you bring when it comes to contribution to organizations, to this country, you know, just kept getting, you kept upping your game and your contributions kept getting higher and higher. And it's, it's I wanted to say I'm humbled and thank you um, for being on our podcast, man. Um, that's really kind. I have to say, um, I think we all have to just try to be very clear about what outcomes we're trying to produce with our career. 
and to articulate those clearly to ourselves and then to figure out career paths that further those. I, I feel like we have left a vacuum in our, in our discourse about the ethical goals of our careers. Um, and right, we've talked a lot about the importance of jobs and preparing for jobs and getting a good career. But the assumption has been that that is mostly to prepare for a life of consumer spending. And I have to say, I think there are deeper human ends at stake. And um, I would like to see, you know, particularly business schools have a much more profound conversation with uh, their students about the ends to which they are going to put their, their skills. Um, as as students and then as leaders, um, I, you know, I would love people to leave business school with the sense that um, yes, I'm going to work in the private sector, but I'm going to do it in a manner which tries to advance a set of of social goals that I think are good for our country as well, and perhaps take some time off and lead a nonprofit or lead a government organization as part of that career. Fantastic. Well, today our guest has been John Kroger, and we talked about a, just a wide variety of topics, including the importance of learning and education for national security, the future of higher education, and supporting human thriving in society at large. So on behalf of Chris and myself, John, thank you so much for being a part of the Indigo podcast. Really happy to do it. Thanks for listening to the Indigo podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.